0: Welcome to the Washington Church Toledo Podcast. Together, we are learning to encourage one another to walk with God through cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus the Christ. This podcast consists of recordings from our Sunday morning worship services and other teaching events that you are more than welcome to come join us live. Good morning, everybody. Once again, it's so good to be with you all. Welcome for those who are, are visiting us, and welcome for those of you who are online and watching us. We're, we're glad to have you. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our series in the spiritual disciplines, and um, we're going to start in 1 John, um, and then we're going to move all over the place. So if you have your Bibles, get ready to, to thumb through them. We're going to be in Jeremiah. We're going to be in the Psalms, back to James, into 1 Peter, uh, back to Psalms, all over the place. It's good. Um, This morning, we are going to talk about, I don't know if I could say this or not, my limited experience, probably one of the hardest spiritual disciplines there are, and perhaps arguably the most profound, that that leaves the, the greatest impact in us as followers of Jesus, right? That's what these spiritual disciplines are. The spiritual disciplines, and this is part of the reason why we're doing a series on spiritual disciplines, I don't know if I explained that to you guys. But probably, I don't know, eight months ago or more, back during the summer when the, the staff gets together and we go away on a retreat and we have conversations like, where do we sense the Lord is leading us? What are, what are we being called into this year? And it was, it was evident that in the ways that God had been moving amongst us at Washington Church, having experiences we'd never had before. Um, actually, Bridget brought this up. She said, you know, the, the spiritual disciplines are such a good way to handle the movement of the Spirit of God. Because what the disciplines give you is, is a framework or a foundation to work from. And it, it grounds us as, as we experience things. It, it gives us something to come back to and it holds us and sustains us in ways. Um, and so that, that's why we're, we're talking about the disciplines. And that, this morning I'm going to share about confession and then next week we're going to have a group of, of three men um, share with you about their personal experience of, of diving into this spiritual discipline of confession and what happens to you when you actually live it out because I, I don't know about you but confession is probably one of the rarest things that we do as believers which is ironic because it's all over the, the scriptures tells us what we should be doing um, and and we struggle to be obedient to the word of god we all do um, but the desire should be to follow it to the best we can and then you know when when we don 't we step into that light that, that Dylan talked about with the kids and, and God is always faithful and always there to to shine on us and, and forgive us uh, when I was in high school I, I was thinking I was sitting here last night and, and just reflecting uh, or yesterday afternoon reflecting on on this message on confession and, and i there's one one instance in my life that probably stands out more than anything else it was i was a either a high school junior or a senior and i had i had you know I was passionate about the lord um, I had a group of, of, of men I was in a, in a small group with that had accountability. We had a leader, and I you know, went to church every Sunday, and, and I was doing the best I could to follow Jesus. But I had found myself in an area of sin in my life that I had allowed to exist and, and continue on. And I was essentially trying to balance that and not wanting to let that go uh, because of the enticement that it brought, but also wanting to follow after the Lord. And you can't do both well. Much like, you know, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. But he's talking about, you know, money in that instance. But I think the same is true. You can't, you can't live a life of, of ongoing perpetual sin and be a follower of Jesus in, in a way that is effective to the kingdom of God. And I remember every Sunday I, I continued to come to worship. Or we did, I did a Saturday night and our youth group met on Sunday morning. So I'd come with my parents on Saturday night to worship and I felt like every sermon that was spoken just was like, just pierced my soul. and made me feel terrible. Um, it, it didn't matter what the topic was. And I, I also remember that in, in order to continue to hold on to that sin in my life, I had to begin to protect it and to guard it and to build walls around it, which alienated me from people and it caused me to begin to lie and, and because that's what sin does. Sin perpetuates sin. In the same, same way that the movement of God and, and holiness perpetuates holiness, sin works in similar ways. And I remember a, a moment where the conviction was so strong and so great, and finally I was literally brought to my knees in this room. I, I remember the scene with this group of, of guys that I was in, in a small group with, and I confessed my sin to them, and in that moment it was like something radically shifted in me. It was like what, was, what, was, what had a grip on me no longer had a grip on me. And the darkness was no longer present. It was like stepping into the light, exactly like the flashlight illustration. And from that point on, that, that struggle was no longer a struggle to the extent that it was. It was still there. It was still present. It still was kind of crouching at the doorstep, but there, there was a victory that had been won. And I'll never forget that. And it shaped and it formed my understanding of sin and of confession and of forgiveness that has made me who I am. And the value and the power of confession of sin to one another, which is what we'll get into in, in James. But 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This, I've shared this story with you before. I was, you know, I grew up in the church, and, and uh, I I had, you know, amazing parents that were faithful people, and they went every Sunday, and they brought me every Sunday, and they were committed to that, and I didn't necessarily love that. I didn't love going to church. I wasn't one of those kids up here dancing around, um, and I, uh, I I actually, my mom was f- best friends with uh, the, the you know, the person who was in charge of the kids' ministry, be like Lacey for us. And they were, they were best buds, and I can tell you, I don't know what the percentage was, but probably like 30% of the time, my parents would pick me up in her office after the kids' ministry time. Not because it was a good thing, because little Jimmy was problematic. Uh, but I remember I had a teacher, and that teacher had a scripture verse on the wall, and this was it, First John 1, 9. He had two scripture passages. First John 1, 9 was, was one. And he said that anyone who would memorize that scripture and say it to him would get a lollipop. And Jimmy was driven by lollipops. <laughs> I would have been hugging Shishikala like all day if I was a kid here at Washington Church. Multiple times during the service. And so I memorized this scripture, not because I wanted to memorize scripture, but because I wanted a lollipop, but in God's grace, God does what he does, and that was implanted in me, and so I, I carried that with me, and I still do. I can bring it up from memory like this. It's powerful. There are certain words in this text that I think are important, and, and there are certain words that we throw around, um, theological words, and, and some of them we understand, some of them we don't, but I think when it comes to this idea of confession, there, there's words like confession, like sin, like forgiveness, and repentance that, are, that we need to kind of define. Because the scripture uses them quite a bit. And I don't know if we, we fully know what they mean when we read about them. And so I, I want to take a moment to do that and then I want to go into uh, communicating why confession is such a, a profound and powerful and necessary part of the life of a believer. And what that is birthed out of and what we should focus on and why, what should lead us into that space of confession. And then next week the guys are going to share about a very extremely practical way to live that out. And that's what this series is about as far as spiritual disciplines. It's, let's, let's lay a, f- a framework the best we can, and then let's give examples of what that looks like in a tangible way, so that if, if we just talk about it and nothing happens, and like, like James says, we're, we're seers but not doers. And really, what difference does it make then? If we have the head knowledge, but it doesn't affect our heart and doesn't transform our lives, is it of any value at all? What makes us any different from, from the rest of the world? It's the way we live it out. So that's, that's what we're going to do. But this word sin is a fascinating word. It shows up a lot um, in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Greek. Essentially, the definition is that missing the mark. It's an, it's an archery term. And, and you've probably heard that if you've been in the, in the church for a long time. Um, hamartia is the actual word. But what I found is missing the mark is a very, for me, it wasn't a super helpful definition. What does that mean to miss the mark? What does that mean to not get it right? What does that mean to, to, you know, not basically hit the bullseye? The perfect center mark is what it's about. So there, there's, there's scripture passages that are, I think are pretty essential when it talks about sin. I'll give you two of them. The first is Romans 6, 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So sin has massive, massive consequences. It leads to death. It leads to death as a... As Obviously, as a non-believer, it leads to death. But as a believer, it leads to death. What I experienced and what, we've ex- what we experience in life, if we live in sin, is a part of us die, begins to die. And it, it's not that, it, this is where it kind of gets confusing theologically. We talk about separation from God as believers. That's actually not possible. But when we sin, there's a disconnect between us and God. And if it lasts long enough, there, there is a, Almost like a, a split that happens, not because God goes anywhere, but because we do, and we kind of, again, it's, it's, it's super confusing, but somebody once described it as, as, you know, a clear window glass, and it becomes, you know, you throw mud on that, it becomes harder to, harder to see through. And we can actually deaden ourselves to the movement or the, or the promptings of the Holy Spirit if we continue to perpetuate that in our lives. Again, not because the Spirit goes anywhere, but because we kind of close ourselves off more and more and more. The second one that's absolutely crucial is is Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the good news about this this message this morning is for everybody. It's for all y'all and myself because we all fall into that category. All of us sin and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's a passage that I think is, but at the same time as we recognize, okay, sin leads to death, um, for believers and non-believers, but in different, different ways. And, and we've all sinned, and we continue to sin, although we're being invited to live a life of holiness. And so that should shift and change as you mature in your, in your faith of, with God, in your walk with the Lord. Uh, but it, also in the reality, to be human means to have sin in your life. And God, in His grace and mercy, uses that to draw us to Himself. It's one Invitation after another to come into the light, to experience forgiveness, to experience God in relationship. James 4.17, I found this verse, and I found it very helpful for for almost understanding or redefining sin from from just missing the mark to what James says. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So in other words, James is saying like, hey, if, if, if you know what to do and you don't do it, that's sin. There's, and then there, I can think of moments in my life where, where I felt prompted by the Lord or, or um, you know, there's something I should have been doing. I, I said no to those things or I didn't do them. And that was, that was sin. That's sin in our life. Another way of understanding it to, to build on what James says is, you know, there, there's a self that God created us to be. Thomas Merton calls it the true self. It's, it's, our, it's our truest self in God. It's, it's God's image of us. And God is constantly inviting us to enter into that and to live out of that, that self, that person. And we say no all the time to it. But, but there are moments when we live, begin to live into that and we come alive. And it's that self that God wants us to be. It's that self rooted in Christ, living like Jesus. And when we, when we don't live like that self, I would say that's sin. Anything short of that is sin, is falling short. It's sin. And so we have to realize that that's what sin is. So that's the first one. The next one is the word confession. And Dylan talked about this with the kids. The word confession is, is, is fascinating, and it's, it's actually jam-packed with meaning. In the Greek, it's homologeo. And what homologeo actually means is to, to be in agreement with somebody. That's what homologeo means. And there's actually two aspects of confession and I won't get in, I'll, we're going to spend time on, on the second, but I want to touch on the first just so we know. Because oftentimes we, we look at confession maybe as a, as a negative word. But actually confession, to homologeo, I can, I can confess my faith to you. And throughout scriptures you find the word confession and people are confessing their belief in Christ. So if I, I were to say to you that, that Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins, that's confession. I'm confessing my faith to you. That's something that I believe that comes out of me, and I find others who are in agreement with that. And that is homologeo. We're in agreement with that. And on the same aspect, on the on the flip side, when it comes to sin, I confess my sin or my wrongdoing to you, my missing the mark or my failing to be who God called me to be. And what you want to do is find somebody who's mature enough who can hold that response from you. And also who has an understanding and a maturity to be able to say, yes, you did. And so we are of one word or one mind. That's confession. That's what confession means. It also means to admit or to declare one's guilt that, that one may be accused of. So that's, that's sin, that's confession, Then that we have the word repentance. And, and repentance literally means to transform the way you think. To see things differently. That's what Jesus says in, in Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is now here. You, ha- you have to change the way you think. You have to repent. So it's literally a, a turning around. It's, it's seeing things anew in a new way. And then finally we, ha- we have forgiveness. The word forgiveness which is afemi. Which literally means to throw something out. Which is exactly what God does to our sin. He throws it out when we confess it. That's the beautiful thing of God. Now, there's there's something fascinating about this idea of of, of sin and forgiveness and confession and repentance. And, and they they are all throughout the scriptures, from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament. But one of the one of the profound things that I, I found as I was going back over this is, is a section of Leviticus. In chapter one of Leviticus, it goes on and on. I don't know all you, you guys are doing your daily quiet time in Leviticus on a regular basis, right? Digging into those, you know, good words that, that Moses Brought to us. But there's there's a chunk of scripture that is given to the the people of God. You gotta keep in mind. They've they've literally just come out of slavery, and God is reforming them and shaping them into who God wants them to be. And so He's teaching them new things. And he sets up this system because he knew that they would they would screw up. He knew that they would fall short. He knew that they would sin. So he set up this system of, of sacrifice, which actually other religions did. It was a common thing, but God wanted them to do it differently and have a different mindset around it. And he said, whenever you fall short, whenever, whenever you sin, what I want you to do is I want you to sacrifice to me. And I, I don't, we don't get this as, as Protestants, and I remember studying this in seminary, and, and it was really helpful for me, because I think a lot of times with, with the Jewish people we can be judgmental. But they never thought that those sacrifices gave them forgiveness. Okay, And this is, a, this is an important thing. Um, Actually, an author named E.P. Sanders did a lot of writing on this in in Romans and stuff, and it was very helpful for me to, to understand this. It was always the understanding that the sacrificial system that God asked them to be a part of was a symbol that at some point in history, God would redeem them indefinitely. That he would send an ultimate sacrifice. And when that ultimate sacrifice came, then the forgiveness of sin would be laid out over God's people. And that, we know that is in, in Jesus today. But at that time, they didn't know that. They just knew a Messiah would come and, and somehow God would fulfill that. But they'd come to sacrifice knowing, okay, God will withhold the wrath and offering a covering over us until the fulfillment of this sin can be made complete. Does that make sense? Okay? Which is much different than we look at, oh, well, well the Jews thought that every time they came to the temple, they sacrificed an animal or whatever they brought, and they were forgiven and they were fine. That's not how they saw it. And God made it clear that that's not what it was. It was a symbol that someday God would fulfill that. And every time they came. So there's all kinds of, of sacrifices. There are burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. But here's the fascinating thing about that. The word offering in Hebrew is korban. Anybody know what korban means? Besides offering. It means to draw near. So think about that. God is setting up a system to help his people as they're being formed and shaped into who he wants them to be. And he says, every time you screw up, I I provide this thing for you so you could be reminded that I will cover you or take care of you. But every time you screw up, what do I want you to do? Draw near. Come to me. And you had to come to, to offering. You couldn't do an offering at your house. There was a central location where they would have to come and they would partake as a community together. And so people would be there. So if you showed up to offer something as a sacrifice, you weren't just doing it because you had to. You're doing it because you, you screwed up in some way. So everybody saw you do it. And everybody recognized that's what they're doing because they all knew the rules and the regulations. And so there, there was this outward expression of coming before the Lord and putting something down on the altar, and, and the priests would help them do that and navigate through. But essentially what they were doing when they messed up is they were confessing to the entire community and to God what had happened. And people didn't need to know the details because they saw the, the sacrifice, and they would know based on the sacrifice what they did wrong. And it wasn't a private thing at all. The community would know about it. But everybody would be doing it because everybody had a realization that, man, everybody screwed up. And we all need God, and we all need this process. But there's a powerful, beautiful thing in there that God is essentially saying, hey, when you do screw up, don't run away, draw near. Come back. And and to understand this, this framework, it's important to understand that in other faith traditions that existed at that time, there are all these other religions, and all these other religions would have sacrificial systems but you'd come to sacrifice and in all those other faith traditions you had no idea where you stood with God none whatsoever you could sacrifice at the altar a thousand times a million times but you never knew if you were going to be okay or not there was no guarantee because there was no grace but only in this one faith in the true God did you know where you stood because he told you that's amazing it's absolutely amazing to know the truth of where you stand in God. What a comparison between the two. Later on in the New Testament, getting into this offering of sin and, and sacrifice, uh, John the Baptist, who's baptizing people and inviting people into the baptism of repentance. At one point he looks up, and, and, and the different Gospels have different accounts, but John says this in John one twenty nine. he says, look, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that moment, the people knew what that meant. Because for thousands of years, God had been saying to them, this is going to happen. And John saw it because they had the Holy Spirit in him and he recognized the truth of what it was. And so he pointed to Jesus and he says, that's it right there. The fulfillment of what God has said to you thousands of years prior. Powerful. One of the things that we have to understand with this idea of sin is that God absolutely hates it. Detestable. Jeremiah 44, chapter 44, verse 4, he says, Again and again I sent my servants, the prophets, who said, Do not do this detestable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their wickedness or stop burning incense to other gods. If we only knew how much God hated sin, It would change our actions on a regular basis. But here's the the thing that's amazing. Even more than God hating sin, he loves relationships. More than anything else. And at the heart of God is love. And that love leads to the desire to forgive and to reconcile all living things. The scriptures tell us. Because this triune God set into motion the entire redemption process for humanity that culminated in the cross of Christ, which was confirmed at the resurrection. Amen. First Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. It was love, not anger, that brought Jesus to the cross. Golgotha came as God's great desire to forgive. Jesus was able on the cross to bring victory through a suffering sacrifice, internalizing evil, the evil of mankind, so that it could be healed and forgiven. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was taking into himself All the sin of the world, all the violence, all the fear, all the evil, hostility, rage, anger, all from the past to the future present. The cross and the resurrection are the ground upon which we could know that confession and forgiveness are realities that transform us. When I started working on this message of confession, I mean, this is a pretty daunting topic to talk about. And as I dug into it more and more, I felt like God kept saying, The only way to understand confession is to understand the cross. You cannot separate those things. They do not exist. We do not have confession outside of the cross of Christ and the work that Jesus did on the cross. And I I, I felt like God wanted me to communicate to us as a church body that if we begin to really delve into the cross of Christ and begin to recognize what God has done for us, And realize the cost that was paid so that we could confess our sins. That the way was made available to us. That should send us running to the feet of Jesus and confessing our sins. Because of what had been done. We have to have a recognition of that. When we develop a recognition of that, the movement in us to confess becomes powerful and profound. Even enough to push beyond what we think others think about us. Which is crucial and important. Because we live in a culture and a society, and I'm I'm no different, I wrestle with this too, we're content and happy and pleased with spending our time with the Lord, confessing our sins in in silent prayer. Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. I do it every day. Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. I start my day with that because I need to. Because I need to be forgiven for my sins of the previous day. And I don't want to carry them into the next day. But there's something even more profound that starts to happen when we bring that into the light. Because not all confession is just between you and the Lord. Some of the things, a lot of the things are relational with other people. And God says, Jesus says, one of the most, I think, hardest teachings he has, he says says, hey, if you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. God's not going to forgive you. Oh my gosh. If we really believed that, we'd be running around confessing our sins to people. What happens though, in our culture, we live in a society where, where we, and again, I am no different. I'm not standing up here saying, I've arrived. I'm still working on this as much as I can. But I don't know, we, we come into spaces like this and we naively think everybody else is just fine. And I could tell you, knowing you many of you intimately, you're we're not all fine. And that's okay. That's not the qualification to walk into this space and worship the Lord. Actually, it's the opposite. That's why we're here. And if we were all fine, we, we probably wouldn't need to be here. But that's the beauty of this place. But we have to get over the fact that we think everybody else has it together. No, <laughs> it's just not true. It's a lie of the enemy, but it keeps us in solitary confinement, right? It keeps us thinking that, well, I'm not okay, and if I let somebody else know that I'm not okay, what's going to happen then? Are they going to trust me? Or are they going to let me in? Or are they going to exile me? And, and ironically, this is what the enemy does to us. In doing that, we exile ourselves, and we separate our own selves, and we find ourselves isolated, and, and again, like my experience was and has been many times, you, you feel more and more and more alone. It is never the desire or the will of God to make you feel alone. It's the opposite. That's why we have community. That's why we gather together as a reminder that we're not alone. As a reminder that God is with us, and when we come together, God feels even more alive. We worship the Lord, and we partner together. Let me give you some examples of what the scriptures talk about when when we don't confess, when we don't practice the, the spiritual discipline of confession. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Psalm 32, powerful text, says this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. And in in whose spirit is no deceit. So this is personal experience right here being talked about. The psalmist. They're talking from their own experience. Nobody can say these words unless you've experienced the forgiveness of God. Because after you've experienced that forgiveness, that's all you want. You just want to remain in that space. But the psalmist goes on and gives us the other side of the coin and puts words to it. It says this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. This is, this is an attempt to put words around what happens when we conceal our sin. When we, when we hold on to it, when we think we can, and, and I've heard this so many times, and I've done it myself, when we think, I can figure this out on my own. Again, one of the massive lies of our times. I'll just keep pushing through. I'll find a way. I don't need to confess this. I got this. I have a handle on this. As soon as you say that, you don't. And you're actually farther along than you realize you are. Again, because God says the opposite. There is nothing you can do on your own. But over and over again, the scripture says, with me, through me, because of me, you can, do the, you can do all things. But without me, there's nothing you can accomplish that will advance the kingdom of God. It'll be worthwhile in life. So he goes on to, to show us what happens. He says, verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This beautiful back and forth in, in this Psalm of Psalm 32 of starting of this is what it looks like. Blessed is the one who lives out a life of confession and experiences forgiveness. And, and then paints a picture of what it looks like when you try and hold on to it and deal with it yourself and you're unwilling to be repentant and confess it to the Lord. And then finally, when you do allow that to come forth, this is what you get to experience. It's a, it's a beautiful and powerful passage. I would encourage you when you find yourself in, in spaces where you need to be reminded about the forgiveness of God. This is a great passage to reflect on and pray through. See, here's the powerful truth. God made us to be pure when we have a relationship with Jesus. And when we experience guilt because of the sin of our lives, that is a gift of God. That's God's gift to you. Because imagine the opposite. Imagine if we could go around and sin and not feel bad about our sin. I mean, that's one of the jobs that the Holy Spirit has, is to convict us of sin. If you take that out, we're in trouble. Right? We're no longer following the Lord anymore. But when we, when we feel discouraged, when we feel bad, when we feel um, convicted of our sin, we need to recognize that's a good thing. Actually, that's an invitation That's God saying again, draw near, come back, return to me, let's deal with this. And and in God's grace, he happily says, I'll leave that heavy hand on you until you figure this one out. And some of us are stubborn enough to just keep plowing ahead, heavy hand and all. And you feel it. And it begins to affect every aspect of your life. You can't hold it, you can't contain it in one place. It leaks out. And God keeps saying, come near, come back. James 5.16. All that was intro. This is, I'm going to start my message now. <laughs> Here we go, what time? 11.24, plenty of time. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James tells us blatantly we should be confessing our sins to each other. This is not like an option like if you if it works out for you, go ahead and confess your sins or if you if it, if you think about it or you happen to have somebody around, go ahead and confess your sins no this is a this is a command as a church. this is how you should be living. Confess your sins to each other and then I, and I love in this verse, and it says that when you do that, you'll be healed. Healing comes with confession. Because with confession comes forgiveness of God, and with the forgiveness of God comes the healing of us. And I'm telling you, it is radical and powerful. And there is absolutely nothing you have done that leads you outside of that space. Nothing. Or nothing you can do that is beyond the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy of God. God longs to pour out His forgiveness on us. And we need it. We need it. If you ever find yourself sitting in that place where you're saying, nope, I'm too far. Nope, God couldn't possibly. Again, God would never say that. That is not the Lord speaking to you. Because God, again, from beginning to end is always saying, come near. Come near. And that never stops. God never stops beckoning us, calling us. Inviting us, and not just with sin, but in the everydayness of our life, whether whether at work, or in our relationships, He's saying, "Come near. I want to work with you in relationships. Come near. I want to be with you in your work, in the place that you go. I want to be a part of every aspect of your life." But this sin thing, we got to work out. We got to we got to get through, so that I could be, you can be fully available to me, as I am fully available to you. And that's why James says what he says. It's a loving invitation for growth and transformation to confess our sins to each other. But it is absolutely scary and terrifying at the same time. And if you've never had that experience, it's, once, it's like once you start, you see the value and the depth. But oftentimes we don't start until we, we hit such rock-bottom places. And if we can learn to mature ourselves and say, well, wait a minute, let's call time out here. And let's, let's have a space where I'm able to confess on a regular basis so it never gets to that point where I find myself isolated and alone. That's what healthy Christianity looks like. But God is patient with us. And ironically, uh, the author of, of the book of James was most likely J- the brother of Jesus. And, and I love the fact that he's writing about confession and, and, and forgiveness in light of the fact he probably had to do that to his older brother several times. If you look back, you know, it was, he, Jesus lived in a normal family. I'm sure it was, it was tough with his siblings. But also there was strain in the, in the family relationship. You can look at that. There's stories of that in the scriptures. But at some point, James literally gives his life to Christ, his older brother. And in that moment, confesses his faith in God. And so he got to practice this. God is calling his church to be a place of openly confession and to confess its its frail humanity and experience the forgiving power of the grace of God. There's a lot more notes here but we got to wrap up because we're going to take communion. When you begin to and, and the guys next week are going to they'll fill in I'm going to give them all the notes that I didn't get to talk about so they can they can you can blame it on them if they don't come through and and say everything they need to say but they're going to do a great job when we begin to enter into this practice it's not easy that's why they call it a discipline but if you could begin to form it into to a some sort of regularity for you it will it will have some of the most profound impact in your life i promise you that and as we enter into this, as scary as it is, it's important to find people that you can trust, that can hold what you're going to say to them. So it can't just be anybody. It needs to be somebody with maturity, somebody who can, can hold that in confidence, but also somebody who can come in, into agreement with you and to say, yes, what you did was wrong. But on the flip side, can say to you then, by the blood of Christ, you are forgiven. I want to put this last verse from John 20 up. This is what Jesus says to his disciples after the resurrection. So if you remember, he sent them out at different times, and they prayed for people, and you saw healing, and you saw radical things that happened. But not once did he ever commission them to impart forgiveness. Not once. Why? Because it wasn't possible through them. All the other things were possible, but it wasn't possible to them. After, Christ gave his, after Jesus gave his life for us and was resurrected from the dead and sin and death were conquered, Jesus then took this last piece and he said to his disciples, whoever you forgive will be forgiven. One of the most profound things that we can do as, as believers for each other is remind one another that we are forgiven that we when we confess our sins to each other to be able to say with all the authority of heaven you are forgiven because of what Christ did for all of us and we need to hear that it's challenging to confess it's it's hard to get up and it's hard to say when you did something wrong especially men we have a hard time with that our pride gets in the way And when we, we bring ourselves to that point where we can say that to another human being, we need to hear from that human being, you, because of the blood of Christ, are forgiven. That's part of your job as a kingdom of priests. Because remember, that's what the priests did. They facilitated a space where people could come and experience God and know that God would forgive them. At that point, it was someday, but now it is so. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what the cross gives us, is absolute confidence that in Christ we are forgiven. We cannot blame our sin on others. We must confess our sins and we cannot be called errors in judgment or blame or blame it on our family members or our upbringing. And all those things are absolutely true. A lot of who we are is because of our family. Denise Froman said this, and I think it's profound. She said, your wounding is probably not your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. Confession is part of your healing process. And your healing cannot take place outside of a relationship with Jesus. Outside of the forgiveness of sins. That's how healing happens. And we need it. So we need to practice confession with one another. We need to make this a normal part of our lives. Just like any other practice that we enter into. We're gonna partake in communion now with each other, and I want to share this with you. I heard this um, shared by a a man of God. His name is Reinhard Bonnke. He travels around. He's had he's done unbelievable things all around the world. And and Americans, we don't we haven't heard of Reinhard Bonnke, but he's he's Europe and Africa and, and all these different places. But he shares this this profound thing, what he says from his experience of preaching in, in all these different places where they have different views of gods and different gods that they worship. He says this, in those other faith traditions, the people set a table for their gods and they bring their sacrifices in hopes that it will do something. But he says In Jesus Christ, in the one true God, that God lays a table for you. And that's what this is. This is the table that God lays before us, lays before the world, and he says, come, draw near to me, come back to me, because I want to be in relationship with you. And I want to forgive you. And I want to purify you. And I want to renew you. And then I want to use you to advance my kingdom. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body broken for you. And he passed it around to his followers, his disciples. He said, Take and eat. He says, In the same way, he took the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And whenever you partake in this, do it in remembrance of me. So people of God, the table is laid. God lays a table before us to partake it. Would the servers please come forward? There are images that I want to show you when it comes to confession. This is the first one. I tried to find, these are all images from the prodigal son story. And if you need to, to learn about what confession and forgiveness looks like this is is probably one of the the most profound parables in all the scriptures but it's, it's a son who screwed up and he comes back at his lowest place and he's received by his father with open arms that's what it's like that's what God is for us a father standing with open arms waiting for us to come back Here's the next one. All of these are from different cultures that I found, and I couldn't find one that I liked the best, so I wanted to show them all to you. But when we get to the last one, we're going to leave it up on the screen. And as you come forward to partake in the body of the blood of Christ, know that you're coming to the table that God set before you. And that table is a symbolism of forgiveness and renewal. And I know that there's many of us in this room that need to be reminded of that and to experience that And even if you need to find somebody to confess sin to, you can do that this morning. This is a safe place to do that. Here's the next image. And then the last one we'll leave up is Rembrandt's return of the prodigal son. So the table is set before you. When you are ready, please come and partake of the body and the blood of Christ. thanks for listening. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at office at washingtonchurch.org or go to our website, washingtonchurch.org.